This episode contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. If any of you or anyone you love has a drinking problem or suspects you might, there are many resources out there for you, whether you choose the Alcoholics Anonymous route, AA, or check out gratefulsobriety.com. We just have a free Facebook group that's an excellent support for those of you who are just thinking maybe alcohol doesn't serve you. Check out Annie Grace's book, which we're going to talk about, and many other resources available at meredithatwood.com. Click on health, then addiction. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those 24 hours that makes all of the difference in our health, our happiness, and our success. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I have another hot topic, and we're covering it again because it's so important. I have Annie Grace. She's the author of This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, and Change Your Life. So one of the things that's been so important to me in my sobriety journey is having a way to get sober that makes everyone feel like they can do it. And that doesn't matter if it's AA or hip sobriety or our little small group that we have on Facebook called Grateful Sobriety. It doesn't matter how you do it or what your support system is. It's just so important for those of us who struggle with alcohol to find a way to get through it and to overcome it. And so Annie Grace, through her book, has an entirely new approach to cutting back or quitting drinking by addressing unconscious thoughts and behaviors around drinking. So the result in addressing these things is a permanent shift in the mindset, which actually gets rid of the desire for alcohol completely. So without desire, there's no temptation and there's no willpower required. So it's a pretty awesome technique and um, methodology that Annie has put out in this book. And interestingly, I think this is a way that I became sober without even knowing (laughs) this methodology. So um, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today, I have Annie Grace here. Hi, Annie. Hi, guys. Great to be here. Thanks for being here. So Annie is the author of the book, This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, and Change Your Life. That is an excellent subtitle. (laughs) Yes. I was like, (laughs) how much can I cram into the subtitle? (laughs) So, um, I, Annie and I were talking a little bit before we started recording about how alcohol is kind of a project of mine in a way, because I never realized that when I chose to become sober, um, going on a year and a half, that so many people would reach out to me and say, Hey, me too. Or, Hey, maybe me, (laughs) or I need to do something about this too. And so, um, I've had a few guests on to discuss and I asked Annie if she'd be willing to come on to talk about it as well. And so I am very glad you're here. 
yeah, it's great to be here. And I mean, I feel the same way. As soon as you start telling your story, you're not alone. We feel really alone when we are, you know, in it, but then you start talking about it and you realize, wow, this is, this is not unique to me. Right. One of the things that really impacted me was when I did kind of come out and tell everyone about it is, is the number of people that I would have never guessed had the struggle, um, that reached out to me. And, and that is really a major theme that just, you're not alone. And it's, everyone's struggle is different, but we all kind of struggle the same at the same time. So let's talk about your story and kind of how you started drinking. Yeah, for sure. So it's funny that you say that because actually when I stopped drinking, my mother-in-law, who of course I spent tons and tons of time with, you know, she was like, Annie, I've never even seen you drunk. Like I'm really surprised, you know, and I drank with her, but yeah, I didn't really, it is amazing how when you are in a corporate environment and that is how I started really drinking in earnest, drinking professionally, Meredith, as you say, it's funny. <laughs> right. very true. Um, I was 26 and my husband and I had just moved to Manhattan. I had gotten this big, big deal job. I was the youngest VP of marketing in um, a financial currency exchange company. And I was literally took aside by my boss and he said, Hey, Annie, you know, just so you know, because I had sort of turned down some invites out for happy hour after work. And for no good reason, really, except that, you know, I was kind of just kept to myself or whatever and would have rather gone to the gym at that time. And so he was just so you know, you know, the bar is a lot like the golf course. Like it's where the deals get done. It's where you can actually have when the senior executives are visiting town, you can actually have their ear. You can pitch your ideas. You know, it's where you build relationships because we're all so busy at work that a lot of stuff happens out. And I just want you to know this for your career and stuff. And, and I was really serious about my career. Right. And I had no background. You know, I was lucky in the sense that my parents didn't drink. So I didn't grow up, you know, with a lot of baggage around alcohol, but equally, I didn't have anybody telling me that, you know, it is addictive. It is an addictive substance. Nobody said that. And nobody said danger, how, danger. <laughs> nobody said danger. <laughs> and how our society portrays it, it, it's, you're hard pressed to find anybody saying that, like, look, there's, there's a downside. I mean, it just isn't around. It isn't in the t TV. It isn't in the commercials. It isn't in how we talk about it with our friends. We just don't talk about the downside. I mean, and you'd be you out. said something, I think it was in the intro, that alcohol is the only drug that on earth that we have to justify not taking. Unbelievable, right? Yeah, like, yeah. so true. And not only the only drug that we have to justify not taking, but numerous studies, not only you know, about toxicity, but about population, yada, 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 confirm that alcohol is indeed the most dangerous drug on the planet. It kills more people than any other substance. And so <laughs> how ironic is it that we live in this society where we have to justify not doing the most dangerous drug on the planet? Yeah, it's crazy pants. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so no, I had no, no warning signs. And, and so I took his challenge really seriously and said, okay, well, it's what I'm going to do. And then I went out and <laughs> it's funny now, but at the time I had no tolerance because I wasn't a big drinker. I hadn't been a big drinker in, in, um, college and, you know, on occasion here and there, but it certainly wasn't central in my life. And so, um, I, st I like had a plan to build a tolerance. So I drink a glass of wine and then I drink a glass of water 
And I could do that. And I realized if I did that, I wouldn't feel it as much and I could keep up with some of the men. And um, eventually, like there was even times I remember being out on a work trip late nights at the bar. We're all staying in the same hotel. Hotel bars never seem to close. And so um, (laughs) we would be out at this bar and I would have no, I'd had too much. And so I would go ahead and go to the bathroom and like throw up the last glass of wine just so I could drink another one and stay out later, which, you know, it's, it's terrifying to admit that, but it was absolutely true. See, what I would do is I would just eat like some greasy food because you said somewhere that you like stopped eating and you just like survived on wine and coffee. But I think instead of my like pacing and, and purging is I just like, well, I must need another donut to absorb (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Which I kind of, you know, backfired on me. I didn't get thinner. I got fatter. <laughs> oh, I I was full on with the, what I learned the term for it about two years after I stopped drinking the alcohol orexia, where yeah. I would be, my by the end of my drinking days, my work trips consisted of alcohol at night, lots of carbs got me through the next day and then coffee all the next day. And I just didn't even have an appetite. I was consuming so many calories and wine that I had no appetite. And I look back at pictures. I looked horrible, haggard bags under my eyes, but I was, you know, the head too big for your body type skinny, which (laughs) is certainly not where I'm at now, you know, but it's so interesting how, um, it just really came on with, with the career and the funniest thing and you know funny in this bizarre serendipitous sort of way is that after I stopped I was pretty bold about it because again I wasn't familiar with a lot of the stigma I didn't know I was just so naive in it like I just kind of had found my own way found my own path found something that worked for me I put kind of the draft of my journals out online in a pdf format for free and 20,000 people downloaded it in about two weeks I don't know how um, (laughs) still to this day but people are like yes this is great this works for me so I ended up turning it into a book about six months after that and um And so I really wasn't aware that, you know, coming out on your LinkedIn saying, hey, I just wrote this book about alcohol was was pretty taboo thing to do. And I was, you know, in some ways committing career suicide. But all of these coworkers read the book and then they call me up. And these were the people I had drank with to, you know, all hours of the night. And they would be saying, hey, me too. You know, this is amazing. Like, I feel so free not to not to I can say no now. And I I we're all in it together. Like we were all trying to keep up with each other in this weird way. Like it was like, nobody was going to call, call that we were all doing something that none of us felt good about when we went back to our families and had to deal with the week with the hangovers and the next day, like we all were putting on such a face about, you know, here I am and my tolerance and I'm so good and that blah, blah. And then Really, when I wrote the book, people just started coming out of the woodwork, including the boss who had told me <laughs> he read the book and he's like, I barely drink anymore. It's amazing. I might have a beer once or twice a month, but I feel empowered to say no for the first time. And I am just so thankful. But it's so funny because we were all just kind of thinking that everybody else really was desperate to keep drinking. And honestly, everybody was kind of like, okay, how can I stop? Which is just so interesting. Well, I thought it was interesting too. Um, I heard in an interview that you did, I'm not, I can't remember where, but someone said, well, does your husband still drink? And, and you, well, tell the story about how 
how it kind of, your book was about to be published and he read it. <laughs> yeah. So that was really cool because so it was, um, my husband's not a huge reader and it was, we published the book October 15th and it was October 13th and he had been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And so finally I was like, look, this is going to go live on Amazon. I talk about our sex life. You have to read this every page. So you're not mad at me later. Like you need to tell me if I can pull the trigger and press go or not. And so he ended up reading it in one day, just cover to cover. And I had quit drinking about a year before the book came out. And, um, so he had just kept drinking and I really felt like this is my decision. This is what I want to do. I was so jazzed about it and stoked about how good I was feeling that it didn't really bother me that he was drinking. Sure. It would have been great if he wasn't poisoning himself, but I wasn't going to be the judge. And he read the book and like, he got done with it. He's like, why, why would anybody drink? Like, what would be the point? And I mean, he just stopped. And he's not someone who I think had, he certainly didn't have any sort of physical dependence. And I think his kind of emotional, psychological dependence was much less than mine. Like I was quite, I really felt that I needed the drink at the end of the day or to socialize or to network. And I I don't feel like he ever got to the, I need it stage, which of course comes over time and exposure to the alcohol. And he just probably, he's bigger than me significantly. So he didn't have as much. And, um, and so he just, he just up and stopped. And I mean, he's maybe, I don't, I don't know when the last time he had, you know, college football games, the first few times he went, he'd have a beer and then he wouldn't like how it made him feel. So he's maybe had two beers in the last two years. And wow. uh, he just, you know, I don't think the last one's been for a year. And I'm like, I hope I'm not like imposing it. He's like, no, I, I honestly don't see the point. And it's interesting too, because I obviously read my book numerous times as I was writing it and then publishing it. And he just read it once. And it was like this switch was flipped and he just was like, there's no, it's not what I want to show my kids. It's not what I want to do with my life. And, um, yeah, it was very cool. That's awesome. So what was your moment? I mean, did you have a rock bottom moment or did you just have a culmination of, man, I feel like shit, I've got to do something about this. What, what was your, I'm done with this moment? Well, there's two moments that I think were really defining for me. Um, and they were both ironically in London, the company I was working for at the time I was, I had been, it was the same company from New York, but I'd been promoted multiple times. So now I was in charge of, uh, global marketing. So I was traveling to 28 countries, trying to get to everyone in a year, which you can imagine what my travel schedule was like. It was completely insane. And, um, I was, the first one was I was in London. I had brought my family over. So we were there for six weeks chunk where I was in the office and my husband was with the kids and we, it was a Saturday and, um, we were going to go to the London eye. And so we were in this huge, uh, courtyard and every like tons of people were around and I had brought beers for Brian, my husband and I to have, and I dropped my purse and one of the beers exploded and started spraying. It was like one of those 24 ounce, like huge beers. And it started spraying (laughs) all over my kids. And my kids are like three and five at the time and they're getting drenched in beer and I'm getting drenched in beer. And all you could do was laugh, but like I was dying inside. I was like this, who am I? Like, what is happening? Like it is 1030 in the morning. I am here cleaning beer off my children. Like this is not okay. (laughs) And, um, yeah, it was like one of those laughing, but crying inside moments where I was like, wow, something. And it it wasn't then actually when I really decided I needed to do something about it. it was kind of one of those moments that like was starting to tip the scales. But then if you fast forward to, we were back in the States and I was just over for a week and I was coming back and I had been out to like 
4 a.m. the night before because it was, I don't know, the Australian football cup was on and there was a bunch of Australians there. So we'd found somewhere to watch it. And then I had to get up the next morning at six to get a taxi to Heathrow. And I went to the hotel restaurant and I um, was just so hurting, like just painful headache, felt awful, completely believed in hair of the dog. So I (laughs) went and (laughs) ordered a mimosa and the waitress was like, oh, sorry, it's too early for champagne. We don't have any open yet because it will go flat by the time people actually start ordering it. And um, I was like, okay, well, what can you give me? And she's like, well, I can do a, a screwdriver, which is just like a vodka and orange juice. And so I was like, yes, give me one of those. And I had two of those. And I was like sitting there just really, I got to the airport and of course they'd kind of worn off by that time. So I'm even feeling worse and I'm realizing I'm going home to my family and they should be getting the best of me. And they were just going to get this shell of a person who had partied it up for four days in London. And like, what was the point? Like that wasn't contributing to my career anymore. It wasn't that being at that Australia cup with people that weren't even going to remember that I was there uh, was helping me progress. I was senior enough that, you know, it didn't, it, the drink, there was no excuse for it is what I'm trying to say. And I was sitting there and it was one of those lines again, it was okay. I just drank, you know, a significant amount of vodka at six in the morning and I never thought I'd do that. And, um, and you know, it was really, really one of those moments where I saw the train I was on and where it was going. And I realized that if I could get off this train before it went any further, that would be a really, really good thing. Now, I didn't quit drinking for another year after that because I, um, but I did make myself a promise in that airport. And I like literally, I still have, it was March 4th because I still have the notes on, I was taking notes on my iPad at the time. And I was like, look, there's got to be a way, like there's something inside me that feels foreign. There's something inside me that wants this that wants alcohol that I don't feel like I'm in control of. And it it just kind of started to spark, like, what is this thing? What is happening inside my brain? What is going on? And I always feel like I need the answers. And I also really felt strongly, and I know this is going to sound horrible, but I just wasn't going to be somebody who just didn't live life to the fullest. Like, I'm like, this is the only life we get. Like, I really want to enjoy it. So if putting alcohol away meant that I just wasn't going to have fun anymore or wasn't going to enjoy my life or wasn't going to wake up excited for the day, like, I, and and that's what it felt like at the time. Like, I felt like, okay, quitting drinking is tantamount to just not having a life. Like, it felt very depressing. And if that was going to be the case, I was just going to keep drinking. I mean, there, there wasn't, an option for me to just kind of say, well, I want to live, but I want to live in this kind of sad sobriety. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, sobriety has been the opposite of sad. So um, (laughs) it's not been the case at all, but yeah, I, uh, so I, I made it my mission to figure out like what is happening. Like I need to understand what happened because I didn't used to feel this way. I knew very certainly in that moment, I didn't used to feel like I needed alcohol and what had changed. Yeah. Um, That's so interesting. And I think it's, um, as a parent, I had a, a similar moment. It wasn't quite as epic as the beer exploding at the London <laughs> Eye, but um, we were having dinner um, just at the house, and my husband said, "Hey, can you know? Can you get the drinks?" And my son went into the dining room in the bar and brought me a bottle of wine and handed it to me. And he goes, "Mommy, here's your drink." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh." Okay. You know, it was like funny. It was funny enough to where I put it on Instagram. 
Um, but that was about a year and a half before I came to terms with, okay, this is a problem. And I think it's interesting because you said that the beer exploding, you know, it wasn't your moment, but it stuck with you. And that was right. one that, that definitely stuck with me. Here's and your, it's funny because they're drink. so, yeah, here's your entire bottle of wine. Oh. And the kids, you know, there's this great, uh, I love listening to um, Rob Bell and the Robcast. And he said something recently about parenting. And he was just saying that, you know, people come up to him and they say, okay, well, I really want to teach my kids something. And what, what should I be teaching them? And he's like, how old's your kid? And I'm like, oh, they're five, six years old. He's like, you do understand that you are teaching them every single day. We are teaching our children all the time. We only rarely use words. And so if you are telling your kid, this is an adult drink, or this is something for later, but you're doing something else, you're telling your kid, no, this is bad, but you're acting like it's good. Your actions, I mean, they speak volumes and your words, you know, they're meaningless. They're hollow when your actions are saying something else. And so I see it and I saw it in my kids and um, now my kids are, are pretty, you know, they're funny because my, my oldest son, he goes, yeah, I used to sneak sips of your beer sometime. So I've been, I stopped drinking almost three years ago. He's going to be nine. That means he was about six years old. Wow. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, just when you guys weren't looking. And I was like, okay, number one, you did it when we weren't looking. Number two, you were possessed to it. He's like, now I know that alcohol is bad. So I wouldn't do that anymore. But, um, like, I was like, wow, like they really are paying attention to everything we do. So if we have any inkling that what we're doing is bad, our kids are, you know, they pick up on everything. Yes. They're seeing everything. Yes, they totally do. And we always joke because my son is, he has this scary memory and I don't know, like sometimes it's frightening. He'll say, mom, remember that time? And, you know, he was like 14 months old. Um, but I thought, oh my gosh, with his terrible, me- I mean, with his great memory, he's going to remember all these terrible things that I did or said. And fortunately, either he doesn't remember them or he's just so glad to have his mom in this capacity <laughs> that he doesn't bring it up. Yep. But yeah, it was, it was scary there for a while. You know, I, I had a few mornings where I couldn't get them to the bus stop. And I remember my son coming in and saying, you know, what's wrong? Are you sick? And I'm like, yeah, mom's really sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like really, you know, um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting how we have to go through this process to get to the point to say, okay, this, this is too much. I can't do it anymore. And yeah. And I- you, your book talks about how we have to deal with our unconscious thoughts and behaviors in order to to get past it. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So the thing that I felt like was living inside my brain and that thing that I felt, well, I didn't used to need this. Um, I went through this experience right around the same time where since my, um, he's, he's six now, but when he was born, I was experiencing this really bad back pain. So this was about two years into it. And I tried everything for two years. I mean, literally everything, traction, muscle relaxants, physical therapy, spent $10,000 at least on my back with insurance absolutely nuts, chiropractic massage, couldn't, couldn't fix it. And finally, somebody recommended this book, um, by Dr. John Sarno called healing back pain. And I read this book and this book, literally, I went from being unable to pick up my kid to the day I finished it, being able to clean out the basement and move all the boxes like myself. And, um, 
it was uncanny. It was unbelievable. And what he does in this book is he says, look, what we do is our mind tries to protect us. So if you have stuff that you're not trying to, you're trying to think of, or you're, you're trying to repress, your body can actually store that as physical pain. And what it does is the pain is real. It it deprives your body of oxygen. And so you really feel this intense physical pain. Um, but it distracts you from these thoughts that are trying to surface and it's a defense mechanism and it can happen with like IBS. It can happen with, you know, all sorts of physical ailments, you know, ulcers, stuff like that. I know there's other causes for ulcers, but it can have its origins in stress and your body just trying to deflect the stress in the only way it knows how. And so he goes, you can kind of entertain this thought, right? now you can say, okay, maybe this is a mental thing really at its source, but I'm going to have to convince you through 300 pages of evidence of medical evidence and scientific studies, because I'm not talking to your conscious mind right now. I'm talking to your, I need to talk to and convince your unconscious mind. You don't consciously decide to have pain, you know, uh, it's very unconscious. And so I read this book and sure enough, I was convinced and my pain went away, um, within weeks. I mean, it was, it was instantly better when I stopped. And then over the next few weeks, he gives you some self-talk and it's been gone and it's been gone for about four years now. And I was thinking about this in relation to alcohol. And so I actually reached out to Dr. Sarno and and I got in touch with some of the doctors that worked for him. And I had this great Skype call with this guy um, called Steve Ozanich. And he's written this book called the pain, the pain connection. But basically I said, look, I have this theory. I have this theory that I have this very prevalent conscious desire to stop drinking or to drink less. Like at the time it was definitely to drink less because who wants to stop drinking? But, um, it was, I want to be drinking less than I am consciously. Like there's no doubt in my mind. I wake up in the morning and make myself these promises about how I'm not going to do it again tonight. I said, but then I have this just yearning for it. And I think it's this unconscious like desire for it. Like, and I think they're at odds. I think I have this like argument in my brain and, um, what do you think? And he said, Dr. Sonner has always said this could be used to treat addiction, the same theory, because it's true. You can have this unconscious conditioning since uh, we're just talking about kids, you know, since you were very small, seeing your parents drinking, seeing it on TV, seeing it in movies, seeing it at football games, seeing it at the Super Bowl, you have this over and over and over. Alcohol is good. You should enjoy it. It's part of fun. It's part of relaxing. It's part of every party. It's part of every barbecue. And so you build up this really strong unconscious conditioning And these beliefs that you feel emotionally that you need alcohol to have a good time, that you need alcohol to have fun, to laugh, to have sex, to relax, et cetera. And then when you get this conscious voice saying, hey, this is enough's enough, you end up getting into a war with yourself in your own mind. And so you have these two voices saying, okay, but just this once, I need it tonight. Oh, but I shouldn't. And I mean, anybody who's been down this path is familiar with this war because it's so painful. And if you think about conflict, you know, we we don't even like witnessing conflict amongst strangers or on TV. So conflict inside ourselves just is destroying. It's, it destroys you and it's very painful. And so what do we do when we're in pain is we drink more to numb the pain and it really cycles from there. So this was my theory. And so I went through with Dr. Sarno's team and then um, a psychologist, a neuroscientist from the university of Michigan and just validated this and said, look, could this be the source? And if I was to change my unconscious conditioning, if I was to go through these beliefs 
and one by one kind of knock them down, but not in the way my conscious mind understands, the way my unconscious mind could understand, could I free myself? And it was a resounding yes from all parties, from the psychologist, absolutely yes, from Dr. Sarno, from neuroscientists, like yes. You, if, if the addiction is mostly emotional and psychological, which mine was, um, and even if it's physical, changing your mind really can help you get through the physical withdrawal period. But you can change this. And so I just set out and that was that year of really research and just, and I didn't put any rules on myself. I wasn't going to stop drinking because I didn't want to increase the argument. That's the last thing I wanted to do. (laughs) I wanted to find like the peaceful place. So I wasn't going to use the willpower. I wasn't going to put these rules on myself. I was just going to figure out. So I made a list of every reason I drank went through every single one and started doing hours and hours of research. Is this true? Does it relieve stress really inside my Mm -hmm. brain and body? Does it make me happier? What does it do? How does it affect my neurons? Like what is actually happening? And um, I'm just a very geeky person in that way. And so I spent all this time, but sure enough, I remember walking out of my office a year later and telling my husband, if you want to get drunk with me, tonight's last night because I'm not drinking starting tomorrow. And I mean, you, you could have like, he was never seen him more shocked ever, ever. (laughs) I Um, had a similar conversation. That's so funny. And, um, I did, you know, I didn't follow your book. I didn't read your book until I was probably six months over, but I think I did this in a way. Cause like you were saying, you made, a, you know, a list or whatever. I did a pro and con list and nice. I said, um, okay, what are the pros of alcohol and what are the cons? And then I realized that anything that was actually on the pro list was really a con because yeah. I would say, you know, it makes me relax, but eh, not really because, you know, here's the cost. But I, I did my little process and I told my husband the same thing. We had his party for work and I said, well, have fun tonight with me. Cause this is my last night. I'm, I'm, going sober Sally tomorrow. And he was like, what, what, what? Cause it was December 13th. Like who gets sober two weeks before Christmas and New Year's? <laughs> um, oh my gosh. That's yeah. so, my date was the December 15th. So oh, same thing so right do. before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cause time didn't matter at that point. Like once yeah. you see it clearly, you're like, all, all that, all it is going to be is me not remembering another Christmas, but that's what was going to happen. Oh, you know? that's what my mom said. She sent me a text, um, this past new year's and I know where it came from, which was a place of love. But at the time it kind of bristled me. She was like, happy second new year's that you remember. Oh, <laughs> I, was like, um, oh. Uh, I had some, I remember <laughs> You're like Jeez. misplaced, but <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> try to see the intention it matter what time when 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 you reach that point of clarity um it doesn't matter that it's two weeks before the holidays and I actually thought hell if I can get through the holidays I, I can get through anything right and I mean you start seeing it as yeah I mean I like to say like for me it went from oh I don't get to drink to oh I don't have to drink like I don't I don't have to keep up with these people at work. I don't have to wake up the next morning with a hangover. I don't have to, I remember laying in the hotel room and just like wake up and be like, okay, what did I say that was stupid? And who did I say it to? And then just like trying to go through the conversations and like not being able, like fuzzier and fuzzier and just being like, oh gosh, I hope it wasn't anything too bad. I hope I escaped again. And I'm like, I never have to do that again. I never have to do that again. This is amazing. Like it was just such a, it was really a freeing euphoric experience. I'd say 
I rode on kind of the honeymoon high of, of not drinking for almost a year. And then I'd say about a year into it, I started saying, okay, now life is life. Life can be tough. You know, like now I need to, to do some of the work to, you know, make sure that I'm, I'm mentally happy and, and add back in, you know, some of the stuff that I used to do, the exercise and whatnot. But I was just on this cloud nine about the fact that I had, gotten off that train before I saw it was going to crash and I was able to get off it. And I just felt so thankful that you really couldn't burst my bubble. (laughs) I think I was really insufferable actually to all my close friends, but (laughs) well, and I always joke with my husband that when we wake up in the morning and he's brushing his teeth and giving me the stink eye that I know exactly what it's for. And it used to be like, why is he mad at me? What did I do? (laughs) I couldn't remember. Yep. (laughs) So, okay, without giving away your whole book, because everyone's going to get it if they haven't run out and bought it yet, how do you you get to this place? Like, how do you tap into your unconscious to to tell it to quit messing with you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I was really fortunate, and it was amazing this this year of writing this book, because, um, like I said, it really started out as kind of my journals. But then it turned into so much more. And as I was going through this process, I met this man, and his name is Dave Gray. And he published a book that came out about a year and a half after mine, ironically. But he gave me an early copy of it to read, and it was called Liminal Thinking. And he had actually devised this very methodical way of uncovering kind of your unconscious conditioning and changing your beliefs. And so beliefs are crazy because beliefs are emotional. Like you believe it viscerally. You believe it like you believe the sky is blue, like you believe water is wet. There is nothing that's going to convince you easily about your belief. But beliefs are very unconscious. So liminal thinking, just liminal is the space between your conscious and your subliminal, which is just a synonym for unconscious and that's that liminal space. And so his, his program, and this is, it's not new at all. It's age old. However, you know, he kind of packaged it in this really great way that I could really relate to. And it basically says, okay, let's take a a belief. So let's take alcohol relief stress. And so you say, okay, why do I believe that? Right? What is it that, that led me to believe this? And this is really important to understand why you believe it. So number one, I believe it because I've seen it on TV. You know, every time there's a homicide detective, after a grisly murder scene, they're pulling out their beer because they have to relax after that. Or, you know, the lawyer and law and order, I'm sure you can relate or, um, <laughs> you know, all of these different things. And then you, people say it all the time. Oh, I just need a beer after the week I've had, or I just need a glass of wine after dealing with my kids or whatever the case is. So, so you, there's all this noise about it. So you're, you're really bombarded with these messages, but then where it gets really tricky is that you have the drink and it works. And so you have the drink and all of a sudden you feel a little bit better than you did before. And there's two reasons for that, which I discovered in my research. One is that alcohol slows down your neural function. So it overwhelms your thinking mind and thinking is where all the stress comes from. So if you have all these thoughts spinning through your mind about stress and then you drink something that makes you think slower by definition, your stressful thoughts slow down. And so it feels in the instant as if it's relieving your stress. And then over time, over just a few drinks, in fact, as soon as any addictive substance leaves your body, it creates a void. And that void feels a little bit like hunger or a little bit like anxiety. And, you know, that void can be almost ever present in somebody who drinks every night because it takes seven to 10 days for alcohol to completely leave the body. So that void, when you drink, 
it, it replaces it. So you, you, the drink actually feels good because it's filling the void, the drink of the prior night left. So it's right. this really, and I go more into detail in this in the book. I won't spend too much time, but it's this really interesting cycle. So your experience then confirms your belief and then it becomes cemented that you believe like this guy is blue, that alcohol relieves stress. So the way to do that is understanding why you believe it and then going and saying, okay, is this actually true empirically? Like, is this true when you compare it black and white to the hard evidence? And so I'll just give you one quick example. And what I do in the book is I take each of these liminal points and I say, stress, is it true? Here's why we believe it. Here is the evidence to the contrary. And that process really, your, your unconscious mind is quite logical, interestingly. Like it doesn't have language, but it, it spins on things. And so it tries to find the logic loop. And so logic really is influencing, which is bizarre. Who knew? But, um, so one example I'll give you is there was a study done of mice and they took mice for 30 days and they split them into two groups and one group they gave a daily dose of alcohol about the normal dose that a human adult would be drinking and then one group they didn't so no alcohol for the second group and then they ran both groups through an obstacle course that was designed to create stress and they measured the heart rate they measured the facial expressions they measured all these different markers to say okay what what was it? You know, how did these mice deal with stress? And the mice that were had been drinking were much less able to deal with stress. Their uh, they had higher anxiety. Their heart beat faster. So the alcohol over the month totally um, undermined their ability, their natural ability to handle stress as it does in us humans. So while it might feel good in the morning, you don't actually solve your problem, and it undermines your physical neurochemical ability to handle stress and handle those sorts of emotions, not to mention tolerance. You need more of it to deal with the stress. And then eventually, instead of dealing with the source of whatever is stressing you out, you have a drink instead and and it just starts to compound and snowball. So once you see that really clearly, you can't in good conscience pick up a drink to release stress anymore because you know you're just making your situation worse. And the best part is that once your unconscious mind buys into that, you don't feel like you want to pick up the drink to relieve stress. You feel differently because it doesn't matter how many, we don't make decisions based on evidence. We make decisions based on emotion and emotions come from the subconscious. They come below our conscious awareness from a whole host of things. And so when you feel like you want the drink, even though you know you shouldn't have it, you are in a pickle, you are in the midst of that fight. But when you don't feel like you want the drink anymore and you know you shouldn't have it it's just like the angels are singing like oh (laughs) like it's just an amazing experience well one of the things that I always felt like I have a lot of and no one would know this unless I told them I have a lot of social anxiety so if I have to go to a cocktail party like let's leave the booze out of it what anxiety that causes but just you know being in a social scene so I always said, well, I drink because it's liquid courage, right? It gives me um, this, this ability to stand on my own, to have conversation. And I had a really hard time, I guess, convincing my subconscious that that was not true because it just felt so true. But then I realized that after two drinks, that liquid courage really fizzled (laughs) and it became Mm -hmm. something else. So I know you have a part in your book about liquid courage. So can, do you have anything to share about that? Yeah, I I think that it's, well, I'll say one thing about courage. Like if, if you're numbing 
the term fearless is interesting. And Alan Carr talks a little bit about the term fearless, because if you're truly fearless, you're really an idiot. It's when you experience fear and you overcome it, that's courage, right? But what alcohol does is it takes those initial feelings away. I mean, that's why somebody with social anxiety, a few drinks in, like it's always the introverts that end up dancing at the table on the Christmas party, right? (laughs) Because (laughs) because it's like, I know it's so bad. And then the next morning you're like, what did I do? I danced. I danced. I told my husband, I was like, oh my God, did I dance or did I sing? You know, it was really bad if I danced or sang. Oh my gosh. And it's so, so, so that by definition isn't courageous, right? Like that you've taken away the fear because the alcohol has just numbed it to the point where you don't even remember it, where you're not even acting within your own personality. So you can't really have courage without fear. Like they're, they need each other to exist, really. Courage is acting in spite of your fear, doing the right thing in spite of your fear. So courage is going stone sober to a Christmas party. And just saying it is the right thing to do to make other people feel really good. So I'm going to walk up to somebody I don't know and start asking them questions like that is courageous. And ironically, then that is the thing that like really draws someone else out of their shell. Because and the other thing that's really interesting about social courage is that everybody feels kind of the same way. Like it's one of those things where we think, oh, yeah, that person is fine. That person is fine. Well, generally, they're fine because they've worked at it. You know what I mean? Like they've made the effort or they've worked at it. But I don't think it's just a very natural thing. I think it's part of our biological heritage to feel timid around new people because it's an unknown. And so it's not abnormal where we sit around and we, Oh, it's so weird to not be super outgoing or to not be, you know, totally the life of the party. That's not weird. That's actually how we were brought into this world and born. If you go to a, you know, a five-year-old birthday party, (laughs) Nobody knows each other. They all cling to their mom's skirts until somebody kind of gets them going. They don't just jump in. And then once they jump in, they're fine. They're great. They're off and running. But that is a natural, normal thing. It's how we were, you know, how we've evolved. And so turning it off is certainly not not um, <clears throat> not demonstrating courage. So I think that whole term liquid courage is somewhat ironic. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, one of the big themes in your book, and I think, in any book talking about sobriety is, is freedom. And I think a lot of us who struggled with alcohol, you know, thought freedom was drinking because it gave us all the, you know, the liquid courage or, or whatever, but that freedom is really living without booze. And (laughs) my freedom is going to a party and not sweating. I used to just, when I would drink, I would sweat (laughs) really bad. And so I always think about that when I'm standing anywhere, even in the middle of the Georgia heat, I'm sweating like an appropriate amount versus like, oh my God, what's wrong with her? Um, so to me, that is, I always think of freedom and like my ability to not sweat as profusely. <laughs> That's so interesting. I've never considered that, but I sweat significantly less. Like I used to have to invest in all these really expensive deodorants and I don't have to do that anymore, but yeah. I've never made that connection. Yeah. That's it's the amazing. Big, the Yay. Another the benefit. Anxiety. You can add a chapter, your pits, <laughs> yes. your armpits, your freedom yes. armpits. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was like noticeable though. I mean, I, yeah. So that that's one thing I always think about is when we're going somewhere. At least I don't have to sit there and pour sweat. And if I do, it's like an acceptable amount. <laughs> right. You're just like a normal human. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. Oh. Um, yeah, I think the freedom is really 
it's really where I try to focus. You know what I mean? Because there are so many things I, I think naturally as human beings, we are adverse to rules. When somebody tells you can see it in kids, you, you tell them to do something, they want to do something else. That's just how we are. Like it's really our nature to kind of rebel against rules. And, um, but when you take this on as a choice, like a proud choice that you want for your life and you've done the work to be able to really truly see it that way and feel that way at all levels of your mind and all depths of your being, then it takes the rules part away. And then it really does feel just like freedom. You know what I mean? And it's not, um, you don't, you don't feel sorry for yourself. I remember people would at the beginning, they'd be like, wow, I didn't know you had a problem, you know? And I'm like, you know, I didn't, not yet, but I was headed that way in a really serious way. And I, you know, and, and they're like, Oh, I'm so sorry. You can't drink. And I'm like, I'm not. Right. And I'm really sorry that like, I, I remember feeling really sorry for people who, cause you can see it. You can see people who are really still stuck and you can see the cognitive dissonance and you can see them. Oh, I shouldn't have it, but maybe just one. And then five later, you can see them make you a fool out of themselves. And I feel a lot of like sadness for them because I'm like, wow, I got out of that. Like, I just yeah. want to help people find that freedom. Um, but if you look at it, like it is about freedom. It is about peace. It's not, not about rules, you know, and, and I, to this day, I haven't had a drink, but I'm like, I, I can't sit here and say like, I'm going to put myself under these defined rules because that just makes me want to rebel against them. And I just have to really just say, okay, well, what do I want for my life? What do I want for my kids, for my marriage, for myself, for my health? And when I answer all those questions, then it's just, the answer is freedom. You know what I mean? And, and I think that I heard something recently about, you know, ask yourself as a woman, does alcohol steal your power? You know, are you serving it or is it serving you? And I think we do, we give our power away to a substance sometimes. And it's sad too, because there's all these Facebook groups, mommy loves vodka and all this yeah. stuff. And I saw this one post, it was, you know, a happy meal for kids. And then a happy meal for the mom is a Xanax and a bottle of red wine. And, and ha ha, funny, funny. But really that message tells us that we need something external to deal with being a mom, to deal with being a parent. And that undermines our confidence in ourselves. And that makes me sad because we don't like, we don't like we're amazingly strong human beings. We are created to be resilient and strong and to have everything we need inside ourselves and to, to give our power away to a substance to say that we need some substance, some fermented, some, you know, sour grapes, basically to parent our children. It's just not true, you know, and we need to grasp onto the fact that that's just not true. We don't need anything, you know, we have it all inside ourselves. And, um, it's funny, but it's not funny because right. we're, we're giving ourselves a message that's really disempowering. I mean, one of the things that I, that was such major freedom for me was the internal dialogue you said about how it, the biggest issue that we have is our, when we have a war with ourselves, when our subconscious is saying, you know, you need this and your conscious brain's like, why, why do you need this? You know, that fight. And when I stopped drinking, 
not having that fight with myself. Um, one, when I woke up in the morning, um, dump out the booze, dump out the booze. You're not going to drink it. You're quitting, you know, and dumping out the booze. Yeah. And then at one o'clock <laughs> going and buying it, yeah. <laughs> starting to think, well, I need some more booze. Like, what am I going to do? And how much is in the house and how much do I need to buy? And texting my husband, can you stop at the store? And this, this whole internal dialogue that on December 13th or on December 14th, when I woke up, I didn't have any more, you know, and it right. wasn't like poof because I still had some, but it was like a whiny child voice. It, it was right. like, I want it, but it wasn't, it had no legs. It had no right. power. And like you said, you know, giving up your power. And I think when you can come to that point and, and maybe it's through, through reading your book, Annie, and that someone can, can figure out, you know, the truth of all of these reasons. But um, when we can look at all those truths, it really is the freedom and, and it's everything. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great book I'll recommend. I just read it, which is why it's top of mind. But when you talked about, you know, the craving, not having power anymore, but just being kind of a thought, this book was brilliant for that. It's called the big book of little change. And it's a really short, easy read, but I, I just recommend it in terms of really seeing your cravings for what they are. Cause they feel completely all consuming. They feel big and strong and scary. And if you don't give into it, you are not going to survive the night. But when you can start to really reframe that and be like, that's just the thought and you, you watch it and you let it go away. It does lose its power. It becomes like the whiny little kid instead of the raging monster that's going to eat you alive. And that's a really freeing thing. So what are some tips that you have? Like for me, I say that the first two weeks are really like the most troublesome. I mean, even if you've made a decision, because like it was just kind of a dark time for me. I don't know if you experienced that, but when when I would journal stuff, it was just kind of like ugly and, and kind of dark. And, and I felt like after two weeks, I sort of emerged. Did Have you experienced that or do you have any sort of tips for people in the beginning? I think that's really, really common. Um, I've heard that many, many times. For me, uh, the first two weeks were really blissful. Like I had a really kind of moment of, wow, everything has changed. And mm-hmm. um, and it was, it, it kind of crept up on me because I didn't really believe that I would quit drinking ever. Like I did all this research really for my own knowledge and and to cut back. And when the moment, when the other shoe dropped and I realized like, I never even have to do that ever again. Like it was just this really exciting time for me. Like I felt really excited about it. Mm -hmm. So I didn't actually have that in terms of the first two weeks, but, um, I know that that is very common because it feels like we are, we just don't know how to cope and stuff. And one thing that I ended up starting to do about a year later, because I I'd say after that honeymoon period wore off, I did have that time of just really being like, Oh, well, this is life. (laughs) You know, wait, wait, what? So, okay. There's no massive ups and massive downs. It's just all kind of life. You know, there wasn't this roller coaster that I was on. And I think part of us the roller coaster is, you know, we have this need for variety. It's like a innate human need. And so the roller coaster of making the mistake and then crawling out of it and then doing the good thing. And then, you know, it's like being on a diet or something. It's this up and down and you step on the scale and you feel so great. And then you step on the scale and you feel so bad, but you're feeling something intense. Right. And about a year later, I was like, wow, I've, I'm just kind of am like, I'm just kind of existing. Like, I, you know, and, and that became a bit dark for me. And I kind of had to say, okay, well, what, what am I looking for exactly? Like, what is the, the 
the thing that I'm looking for. Like, do I want to go out and get wasted and party and like act like I'm 22? Is that what's missing in my life? Or is it, is it something else? And one thing that I had been really resistant to was meditation because I, my parents meditated and I just thought it was all about clearing your mind. And, um, I could never do it. I tried numerous times and I thought it was just a joke and stupid, but I read a book about um, it was called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, and he just talks about just taking one second or five seconds to say, okay, let's just be aware of where I am and what I'm doing, because we don't stop that. And so say, oh, here I am. I'm talking to Meredith. We're having this amazing conversation. I'm sitting in my office. You know, it's about to rain. It's here I am. And just being conscious of that, these little gaps throughout the day. And at first I had to actually set my alarm to like go off because my stream of thinking was so intense that it wouldn't happen. But once I started to make these little gaps, I became really kind of more grateful for things. And that really changed, brought me out of that a little bit. And then the other big one for me was um, self-talk. I was always, I've always had this dialogue that I'm not doing enough and it's not fast enough and I'm not good enough. And it's funny because that probably sounds familiar to you and probably every other <laughs> human on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we think it's all unique to us, but it's just this, this mind runs away with itself. And so um, I had, what I started to do was if I started to feel anxious or bad or depressed, I'd be like, okay, what was I just thinking? And I would kind of like back up and I'd even write it down at first and say, you know, I was just saying, Oh geez, Annie, all these other people are doing so much more than you. Why are you just here? Well, whatever the case is. And be like, wow, I wouldn't even talk to a stranger that way. Yeah. You know, much less somebody I love. I would never talk to my child that way or my mother. And I need to start talking to myself like I would talk to my kids, you know, um, or I would talk to my mom or I would talk to somebody I really loved and cared about. And that was a long process. I'd say that was six months. I mean, really trying to be aware of it and writing it down and reminding myself. And every time I felt a negative emotion, trying to say, what am I saying to myself? Um, to get myself out of that. And it's one of these things that they're very cumulative. We look for these switches in our culture. We look to pour, it feels so good to pour the glass of wine or flip on the Netflix or scroll through Facebook. Cause we look for this dopamine hit, this switch, this instant change of state, but really the things that last and that give us true joy and freedom in life are these very cumulative things of changing the 60,000 thoughts that go through our head every day. They're 80 to 90% negative. If you can change that to be, you know, even 10, 10% more positive, you, you're making a huge change in your overall well-being and therefore your health. But it's 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 practice. You know, you have to kind of do the work and, and little by little, you know, a week of doing that really makes a difference. And then two weeks and then months, you're like, wow, I'm a different person. I'm a different person than I was. You know, you just don't feel um, the way you did before. So you get yourself unstuck, but it's, I think it's slower. And, and we're, especially as drinkers, you know, we poured the drink cause it was such a quick fix. And so we want that quick fix. And so I, I guess my biggest piece of advice is do the work and have the patience with yourself and realize that this is a beautiful evolution, um, of, of yourself rather than an instantaneous kind of switch that you're going to just flip and everything's going to be rosy. That was like so much good stuff. And I'm just thinking all I gave you was you don't sweat as much. <laughs> I love that one though. That's brilliant. Like I'm so excited about the deodorant savings. <laughs> so funny. No, that, that there was so much that you just said that resonated with me. I mean, I guess I didn't realize that I was sort of living on that one year sobriety high. And, and I've read a lot of people say that 
the relapses happen most around year one, mm-hmm. um, you know, the year one of sobriety. And it's, I've kind of been dealing with some of the, like you said, it was dark and I've felt kind of dark lately. And when you said, um, the power of now and, and taking just the moment, um, cause I've been very resistant to meditation and it's so funny because yeah. everyone I interview on the podcast are like, yeah, meditation really helped me. And I'm like, damn it. I don't want to talk about meditation. Yeah. I'm just like resisting it for some reason. And, but what you said about the power of now, um, that's really, I'm going to, I'm going to read that book because I think I'm failing to do that. My mind is still just racing. And I told my husband a few days ago, I was like, I know why I drank, mm-hmm. you know, because it stopped this. And I was laying awake at three o'clock last night and thinking, I know why I drank Yeah, <laughs> because I wouldn't yep. be laying awake right now. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really valuable. Well, you have to let me know what you think about it because that book was so pivotal for me. And it's, I mean, there's some way wacky stuff in there, but he never once is going to tell you to go sit on a cushion somewhere. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Well, Annie, I really appreciate this time and um, I'm going to post up all the media links that you sent me for everyone. But um, so one final little question before we go. Um, this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, and it basically was born from the idea that we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we choose to do with those hours that makes us happier, healthier, and more successful. So I ask everyone, what is one thing that they can share that they do on a daily basis that makes their 24 hours great? Well, And don't gonna... say meditation. <laughs> <laughs> It's all about meditation, <laughs> Meredith. Just sit on your cushion. No. Um, I'm gonna, can I tell a really quick story? Because I love really the long story. Your... It's fine. We're not <laughs> okay. on a time limit. <laughs> you're, um, the, it's just so brilliant, the same 24 hours. So my baby girl, she's seven weeks old, and I um, named her Daylin. And the reason is because I wanted to call her Day, because I feel like in the last few years, I am being taught about a day about how life is really daily. And I've spent so much of my life trying to get through the next thing. And I think we all do this in order to get somewhere. And in the last three years and all since stopping drinking, I have realized that life is not about getting to the next day or the day when you have that marriage or this amount of money or that business, or this is happening. It is about existing in this day. And so I named her Daylin so I can call her day so that I can think about that every time I look at her and just think about, it is about living in this day. And so at the risk of repeating myself, I say that at least once, and even if you have to set your alarm and you will become addicted to this in such a beautiful way, stop and just say, I am here and look up at the clouds and look around at what is around you. And no matter where you are, even if I've done it in like a grocery store and I've been just, wow, I'm so like, we have all this food we can just buy and it's on the shelves or, you know, in the bathroom, we have this tap we can just turn on and it all sounds so cheesy, but when you actually do it and you just stop just for like five seconds or 30 seconds and be where you are instead of in your head, that, that has changed my entire life. That is really awesome. That is so valuable for me right now. You have no idea. And I think it was it's funny while you were talking about naming uh, your daughter. Our daughter is Stella, and we just named her because uh, we love the, the name. But as we were um, drinking, she used to see the beer Stella and tell everyone that she was named after a beer. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it's a beautiful name. I love it. So you name your daughter after something really meaningful. I named mine after a brew. It's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Oh, well, thank you, Annie. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Meredith. Have a wonderful day. You too.